Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, as almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is Thursday, November the 5th, 2009, and this is episode 311 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, and today what we're going to talk about is selecting either bug out property uh, or permanent homestead property. Uh, either one or picking out a bug out location that will eventually become a permanent homestead. Any one of those three uh, this will apply to. This is going to apply mostly to somewhat um, remote slash rural type property. We're not going to be talking about how to do that in the city today. Other than that, there will be a lot of flexibility in what I'm going to give you because as always, when you're buying something that's important and as expensive as land and houses, that's a highly personal choice. And uh, it's lunacy, I think, for one person to put complete hard, fast rules in front of another with a few exceptions, and some of those we'll talk about today. Um, for that, though, let's knock out the housekeeping. Uh, number one, make sure you're taking care of our sponsors. Remember, they help support the show and make it possible for you. Uh, they are all personal endorsements, personal recommendations. And uh, with that said, our first one is one I have a very easy time personally endorsing and recommending. That is SOE Tactical Gear. Sean Willis and his crew, 100% American-made tactical gear, the best on the market, and I will not apologize for saying it is the best on the market. One thing you really need to understand about Willis's gear is that the majority of it has been created from special requests by people that are in special operations unit, Navy SEALs, special forces, things like that around the world with specific missions in mind. They'll come back and say, we've got this new piece of gear, this is our harness, this is our rig, we need something that is custom made for this job. Um, now those things have a lot of uh, utility in the civilian world and a lot of things you can do with them, but what you should understand there is the very best people in the world at tactical situations choose this gear rather than a lot of things that they're just issued. That's how good this stuff is, folks, and uh, really, really blessed to have John as a sponsor. And uh, I want to tell you guys something. John doesn't pay to be a sponsor. He, he jumped in and took care of this show when we had like a dozen listeners. He started throwing stuff at me and said, hey, give this stuff out to your, your listeners and help me with the initial listener appreciation contest and things like that. Donated a ton of stockings for stockings for soldiers last year. Um, you know, these tactical stockings are really cool. And and because of that, I gave him a year of free sponsorship on the show because he was so dedicated to taking care of the show. I don't know if everybody really knows that. I don't think everybody reads my ad policy and, and knows that I actually give away one sponsorship a year to somebody that's gone out of their way to support the community or the show. All right. Um, next uh, on the list, though, is another one I have no problems with a total 100% enthusiastic.
fantastic endorsement of, and that's Tea Party Silver. And uh, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I have every coin they make, I said, except I think they came out with a couple new ones recently. Probably need to put an order in and get a couple of each of those. Um, I'm a big believer in having silver as part of your portfolio. Uh, their commemoratives are a few dollars a piece more than an American Silver Eagle. To me, it adds flexibility, it adds some numismatic value, and it adds some beauty to your silver collection. So I think it's a no-brainer if you're buying silver to give these guys some business, too. Um, with that, we end the sponsor of the day section. Let's go into the forum. Join the forum. Get involved in the forum. Done. Last but not least, if you think this show's worth more than 20 cents an episode, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, lots of new things there. If you are an MSB member and you haven't logged into your account for a while, get into your account. I've got all kinds of new stuff for you. Uh, there's a 30-minute video uh, on composting, if you haven't seen that yet. There's discounts op- offers for uh, multiple vendors now. We're going to be adding some more. So uh, with that, uh, consider supporting the show that way. Contribution of $50 a year or $5 a month. Now, let's talk about the main topic today. I want to let you guys know right up front, uh, I'm running no notes today. I got no notes, no bullet points, no nothing. Um, I just was going to do something different today. That'll be tomorrow. It's going to be cool tomorrow's show, um, but I wasn't quite ready to do it yet today. And uh, I've decided to preempt it instead of doing it half ass for you guys to do it solid tomorrow. And uh, today, to talk about something that's easy for me to talk about and fresh on my mind, because I'm just back from my bug out location, which in about March of 2010, unless, you know, something happens to speed it up, um, we will make it to a primary residence. So I was just there. I was thinking about all the things we did right, all the things we did wrong, all the things that we're going to have to change, all the things that we're going to be able to leave exactly the way they are. And I thought this would be a great topic. And it's something I get a tremendous amount of questions about. I get an email probably a day from people with a land listing. Hey, would you look at this and tell me if you think it's a good bug out location or think it's a good homestead property or what have you. And the thing is, I'll do what I can to help people when they send me that, but it's hard to know until you actually walk there. I can just look at the listing and say, here's some concerns, Uh, check them out and see if you can make make yourself at peace with these. other than that, it's really hard to do that for people. So I prefer to, to give you my views, and then you take them, make them your own, and then apply them to your own decision-making process. That way, it's your decision that you own instead of somebody told you to do it, because that never works out really well. If you wanted people to tell you what to do, you wouldn't be a prepper, a survivalist. You wouldn't be in self-sufficiency and self-reliance. So, so that's why I'm taking that approach today. Let's start out with the most important piece of this to some people, and that is remoteness. And what I want to start out with talking to you about today is that remote is a relative term. There are people that would consider where I live in Arkansas to be like, they would say, that's out in the boondock, that's out in the sticks, man. That's in the middle of nowhere, that's a jabip. You know, like, wow, that's just hell and gone forever away from anything. How do you, there'd be people that say, how do you live out there? They say, well, Hot Springs isn't that far away. That's a podunk little town. I like it that way, right? But there are, my point is there are people that would, that if you heard them talk about my place in Arkansas, you, and they didn't give you a state or a city or anything, you would be under the impression that it was in the middle of the Bitterroot Mountains in Idaho. That's the illusion that they would create for you, because in their mind it's that remote. There are other people that might be the people that would consider the Bitterroots the remote area, and it is remote, folks. They would look at my place and say, that's in the middle of the city. 
So remote is a relative term. And I think that what you have to do is take into account your the, the, the desired living conditions that you have when times are good, your risk tolerance for when times are bad, and balance those and make an independent decision how remote do you go. And I look at this like life insurance. Um, if you're a, if you're, say you're a dad, you've got three kids, you make about $50,000 a year, um, you got a wife, and they depend on you to eat. A standard insurance recommendation would be 10 times your annual salary in term insurance, which is the cheapest you can get, that's there to insure you against your death. Because your need for the insurance will decline as you build wealth, as your children grow up and leave the home, uh, as you pay off debt, all those different things. So initially, a half a million dollars in term life insurance. But no one's going to hold a gun to your head and say you must pay a half a you know, buy a half a million dollars worth of term, and no one's going to hold a gun to your head and say you must you, you can't buy more. Each individual will look and say, well, what's the cost? What's the sacrifice? What's my risk tolerance? Am I comfortable with a half a million? Would I prefer to give myself a full million? Twenty years of my salary still being there, taking into account inflation and other things. Maybe I even want more than that. Am I young and healthy and can I get it cheap? Right? Or am I old and sick and I'm going to pay through the nose from it and I might be better off to bet that I'm not going to die and put that money into cash? And any time that you buy something like insurance, you have to ask yourself those questions. About the only person that can just go out and say, I should buy a, a, a crap ton of this, is a guy that's 24 years old, newly married, completely healthy, doesn't smoke, and can buy, you know, a million dollars worth of term for 40 bucks a month. And can buy block in the 30 year rate on that. Well, don't do it, you know. Because that way you, you're, you're dirt cheap insuring your family for 30 years. And that makes sense. But anybody else that's at different points in their life is going to have to ask themselves a series of questions. When you ask yourself that first question, how far from the city, how far from my, the rest of my extended family, how far from civilization, what size town, you're going to have to ask yourself similar questions. How remote am I comfortable with? Okay? And you're also going to have to understand something that's extremely important that I think that in our our youthful arrogance we tend to overlook. If I'm going to make this into a permanent homestead, and I'm eventually going to move there, and I'm going to spend the better part or the rest of my life there, will it be too remote for me when I'm 65 or 75 or 85 years of age? If you're really talking about a lifelong decision to make a permanent homestead. And I think that when we're 35 and we can run up and down the middle of the mountain, that we tend to think, oh, that's no problem, all those rocks that are there and that gravel driveway and all this weed eating that has to be done and, and things like that. Now, you can certainly create an environment for yourself through permaculture techniques that requires very little maintenance, but you still have the remoteness factor. Are you going to be comfortable when you're 80 driving up and down that windy gravel road? or dirt road, or mud road? Will you be okay when you're 80 if you end up stuck for two weeks, not because the shit has hit the fan, but simply because you're so remote, that's just the way it's going to be? I'm not saying you won't be. I'm just saying you better think about it, and you better ask the question as part of your assessment with how remote do you go. All right?
The other thing with the remote factor is, who's going with you? I know some of you guys, you're like me, man. You know, you could put me in the middle of those Bitterroot Mountains, and uh, I'll tell you what, I would probably grow weary of it after a couple of years and want a little bit more civilization around me, but not a whole lot. I could probably find some happy medium, you know, close to a small town like, uh, you know, Bozeman, Montana or something like that, and in the foothills of the Bitterroots, and, and I could probably be pretty dadgone happy there if I could, you know, just maybe take a drive for an hour and find and be around people if I wanted to. My wife would divorce me if I talked her into going there. Eventually, she'd just snap and she'd leave. So I have to look at some different things, like having a small town readily accessible. It's a little bit more involved with little activities and things for her to do um, than maybe somebody else would. And that's okay. And all I'm saying for you is you need to ask that same question. Who's going with you and how happy or unhappy will they be with where you decide to go? That's extremely important because it's going to have a, trust me men, it's going to have a huge impact on your long-term happiness or long-term misery. And I would choose happiness whenever I was given the opportunity. So you better think about that as well. The next thing you have to think about is what about medical support? And I, I'm, I, I'll give you a, a, a sneak preview. Tomorrow's show is going to be about like ditch medicine. Like how we can use medicinal plants to grow wild. And I'll leave it at that. And we like to think about stuff like that. And that's cool. But you know what? If you have a, a, a heart attack, you need medical treatment. And when you're older, you're more likely to have that. Now, maybe you're like one of these people that when I kill over with a heart attack, if I can't get the medical help, I can't get the medical help. It's my time. If you're okay with that, that's so be it. But you, you at least need to think that way. And are you okay if it's your wife that does that? Or if you're a woman, are you okay if it's your husband that, that has that, that heart attack that maybe doesn't feel the same way about it? Um, you also have to realize that there are certain requirements of, let's say, maintenance medication, um, checkups, uh, doctor visits, things that become more common as we get older. So it is something to think about. If you are out in the middle of nowhere, that's not there for you. Now, you may be a hell of a lot healthier and need a hell of a lot less, but odds are, as you get up into that 60-plus demographic, you're going to need some. And how far are you going to have to go to get it? Will that decrease the number of times you you go? Will that be bad to your long-term health? All of these things. So, to me, it's one of the uh, the smarter things we did about choosing our area. Um, as that uh, in the area is also a little town called Hot Springs Village, which is one of the largest senior communities in the United States. Uh, it's tiny by comparison to uh, any kind of town, uh, but the number of seniors that are there and kind of live in a gated seniors-only community uh, up there is huge. And that means there's a tremendous amount of medical support geared toward the senior population in the area, as long as the ass cloud doesn't destroy it with Obama health care, it'll still be there. And it's not right out the front door, but nor do we want it to be, but it is in the general vicinity. That was one of the things they think we did right, especially as my wife and I continue to age, as we all do, as the clock of time flows. So that's the first, and that was a big one, but I really wanted you to start thinking about that, because I think a lot of people in their mind with a survivalist retreat or a bug out location envision a place that is like totally at the edge of nowhere. And I think that's an extreme situation that has a lot of its own problems. You don't have neighbors you can rely on. If you're managing the location remotely, you don't have neighbors you can rely on to keep an eye on your place. Um, 
James Wesley Rawls, who, who, who agrees with a lot of, uh, we agree with each other a lot, we disagree with each other a lot, if you look at our philosophies, there's, there's overlap and complete departure, um, is a big proponent of the extremely remote location. But I've also seen him say, if you ain't going to be there, you better have a neighbor that has line of sight to your property who's willing to keep an eye on it for you, or vermin will find your stuff, destroy it, uh, take it over, what have you. So that would kind of take away from that complete total remoteness now, wouldn't it? Um, by his own admission. And I think there's a lot to be said there. And that doesn't mean you can't find some pretty remote places, you know, with small little uh, neighborhoods around them. But um, that total edge of nowhere, probably not the way to be. Um, and with that, let's move on to another thing I think we need to think about. Somebody asked me this as a question, and I was just, I've decided to just put it into today's show. And uh, basically what he said is, hey, look, you uh, you really hate homeowners associations, and uh, I agree 100%. Uh, but what are your thoughts on living rural or remote enough where you mitigate how many freaking building codes and you know inspections and permits are required to build something? And, hey... Um, it, uh, that is a place where, personally, I made a decision. I need to be remote enough for that to be the case. Um, getting a permit to build a deck in a pool in Arlington is not that expensive. It's under 500 bucks, But it takes forever. You have to jump through hoops and beg and plead the guy that comes out. and He'll always find some reason not to give it to you now. And if you change this, then I'll give it to you. And it's just a pain in the ass to build a pool and a deck in your old back freaking yard. Now, I want to build a deck in uh, uh, in uh, in Arkansas where I live. No one cares. If I called up the uh, the county and said, "Hey, I need someone to come out here and look at this," they'd say, "What the hell are you nuts? We don't care what you do. Get on with yourself." Because it's considered by the land, the county unimproved land. In other words, they don't provide any maintenance other than to the general access of the road. That is all. Um, the power company provides electricity, and that's it. The phone company provides a phone line. That's it. There are no other services at my property. I don't want any. With service comes dedication, devotion, what do you want to call That's not the right word for it. If you get service from somebody, you end up inherently not just dependent upon them, but when it's a government you're taking a service from, you become um, responsible to them. You become uh, more under their control. So if the city provides full services to a piece of property, um, I'm not really interested in it. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be. I'm not saying that can't work for you. And I know a lot of people that have gone into like the edges of small towns and rural communities, and their location looks just as remote as mine, but they have full services and they like it. They have water. They have sewer. And, you know, the, 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 the city normally sends police patrols out there and all that good stuff. But your taxes are going to be higher, and you're going to be under the thumb, so to speak, when you want to do things to your property because it falls much more under their jurisdiction umbrella. With where I'm at, out, and even though I'm relatively close, I'm out of that umbrella of jurisdiction. It's so sparsely populated, and this is part of why we chose the place, that anybody that would consider annexing it into a jurisdictional state and, and so that they could do things like increase property taxation has to look at the, this extremely thin population density and go, there's not enough, even if we jack, if we doubled everybody's property taxes, the cost of delivering services to these people is cost prohibitive. We'd rather not be responsible, and, we, and let's face it, where they're at, we can only justify so much of a tax increase, so we don't want it. We're hands off. 
And since we're in a piece of property that has a building covenant among the residents, which is no more than one structure per five acres for occupancy. In other words, one house per five acres. Now, if you want to bring in an RV or something and use it as a guest house, you can do that, but it's, it's not a permanent residence. Nobody can have an address there or what have you. And um, that is... Uh, that creates that thin population density. And I think it's why cities and town planners don't like uh, building restrictions like that. Because it's always going to cap their their available tax ceiling, which I like. And again, the, because they're not out there, you want to build a deck, you want to build a pool, you're not dealing with 20 different ordinances and an inspector to get the permit from and then an inspector to sign off after it's constructed. And, and there are, you got to check your own areas and what's required and what's not. But where I'm at, if I want to build a deck, all I need is materials and some and some time. And I think that's a huge thing. And I think it's something that when you're evaluating properties, and if I had two properties and everything else was equal, including price, and one property was 10 acres, but it was strongly under the thumb of a local city ordinance type situation. And the other one was, let's say, half the property size, five acres, but the structure was pretty much the same. And it was free of that. I'd probably take the smaller piece of property. Because eventually, uh, I'm going to be paying out the nose to the city on taxation for that extra five acres. In fact, it's probably going to be straight up front. It's not going to be the same price because the total cost of ownership is going to be higher. And the total cost of simply doing projects that I want to do, building a greenhouse. If I want to go build a greenhouse, I don't want to have to go get a permit to build a greenhouse. You may have to deal with that based on where you live in the world, but I I would say if you have the opportunity not to, then don't. The next thing I would tell you is if you can find property that at least the last part of the access road is not paved, that's probably a good thing as long as the road is real, you know, relatively serviceable and usable throughout most of the seasons of the year, and uh, you don't have a problem dealing with that. Because one, it will keep it'll keep taxes down. Two, it'll make the entire situation I just described a hell of a lot more likely. But three, I think there's a huge security advantage to that. There is a psychological click that happens in a human mind, especially if you've never been there before. When you're driving on blacktop and you get to a point where it goes from to rumble, 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 rumble as you're going across dirt or gravel. It says to you, I'm not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy, and I don't feel quite as safe about what I'm doing as I do on blacktop. And it's not a 100% security advantage, but it does have a psychological edge. And I think that if we had more dirt roads in America still, we'd have less crime in America. At the end of dirt roads are often things like large dogs that bite and old men with L.C. Smith shotguns. And that's known, it's understood, and it's, uh, it, it's, it is an effective deterrent to uh, drive by uh, thievery. It's not 100%, but it's effective. I also think if you happen to find an area where there's a gate on the road that keeps it private. I'm not talking about your typical gated community, but simply uh, this this road from this point on is considered private for residents and their guests only, and we've put a you know a gate up. Um, that would be a really huge advantage. I also think that once you move into an area, 
and you get to know the people there, if it's possible to do, you may want to re- bring the issue up and say, hey, uh, what do you guys think about putting in a gate? Uh, because I'm not at the location often, um, I almost missed an opportunity to go in on a gate with my community up there. No one called me. We happened to be up there, and they were taking measurements and considering where to put the gate. And they said, yeah, we were going to call you and want to know if you have any problem with the gate. I said, I don't have any problem with the gate at all. Put it south of my property, and let's, let's all be back here together. And they're like, oh, that would be great. Would you help with the expense? I said, how much do you need? And it ended up being like 75 bucks, um, which was probably the best 75 bucks I've spent in the last five years. So we're now behind a gate. I think there's a, there's another big advantage. There's several advantages to the gate. Uh, and people say gates only keep honest people out. Gates keep honest people out, and they keep a huge segment of dishonest people out. A gate takes away the opportunity to say, I got lost and wandered back here accidentally. You get to a closed gate with a sign that says, Private Road, keep out, um, and you go past there, then you know what you're doing. Right? You absolutely know you're wrong. Which means that anybody that you see do that, you know you need to confront. And you know they're full of shit if they lie to you. And that makes dealing with it a lot better. When we first put that gate up, our property is built in an area, uh, and our surrounding properties, our neighbors, that a lot, that you, it was always privately owned, but a lot of the locals used to hunt it. Um, I would say a tremendous amount, but there were a few that did. And because it was, there was a dirt road up there and no one lived there and it was empty and no one patrolled it, um, it was taken for granted that you know, you're just allowed to hunt there. And for the first year after we put the gate up, we had people trying to take the gate apart. We had people saying, hey, I've been up here my whole life. And uh, it eventually took a while for word to get out that the residents up there had stood up and said, you're not coming here anymore. And we don't have any problems with it anymore. I even had somebody steal a deer feeder off my property um, before we got that problem rectified. And uh, what I've heard from my neighbors, since I'm not there often, is since that gate's gone up and those signs have gone up and the few confrontations that were required uh, occurred, they don't see anybody anymore. They don't see people on motorcycles coming around. They don't see anybody. There's so much uh, open space up there that is publicly accessible that uh, once the word got out that, hey, these people aren't allowing this anymore, they went elsewhere. Now, people would say, well, if it shit at the fan, then you have a problem because people know where you're at. Yeah, they also have already learned that there's an armed population up there that won't take any shit from them. So I actually see that as an advantage. And um, that's probably one of the bigger advantages we have. So if you can have a gate on your road, I think that's a huge advantage. I also think if you have a one-way-in piece of property, that's another big advantage. And and we do as well. Uh, We have that one-way-in, one-way-out. The big advantage there is, should we ever really get into a shit-hit-the-fan, and you at least want to impede vehicular access in, um, a chainsaw and a couple trees across the road at a few different intervals will massively impede the ability of, uh, let's say, scum to access your property with a vehicle. Accessing on foot still totally possible. However, um, a lot more dangerous for them and a lot safer for you if they can't drive up. Uh, something really to think about and really to consider. The next thing is water. 
how are you going to get water on a piece of property? I've had people send me recently quite a few different plots that are in, in different desert and high desert locations. I said, this is the one thing you've got to answer now. Uh, from what you're sending me, it doesn't look like you're going to have any access to city water. How deep's the water table in this place? What's it going to cost to put a well in? How reliable will the well be? If you're going to rely on rain catchment, it's a desert. How much, how much rain does this place actually get? How much rain can you procure? If the well in your area is going to produce at different flows at different times of year, and there are places where that happens, the water table rises and falls throughout the seasons. And if that's going to happen, can you do things like put in reserve tanks and pump extra water while the surplus is available to get through the leaner times when the flow go, goes down? But you've got to have water, and it's something you've got to look at. To me, any property that has good usable surface water, even seasonal uh, surface water, Huge advantage. Another thing we have, not quite to the level that I would like, but we do have what I would call a seasonal creek. It probably runs nine months of the year. In the driest part of the year when there's no rain, it'll stop running. Um, And it's kind of along the back of our property, and it's completely unseen and hidden from all eyes. I mean, you wouldn't even know it was there except when it really pours and it's running fast and you can hear it. My plan is actually um, to create a small dam down there that will create a reserve pocket of water even during the drier times of the year as I have to cut off an ass clown that just doesn't want to let me in. The lane ends, jerk! All right. Um, and, and to do that, and I, I think it's going to be relatively easy, and we looked at it. I've actually talked to the neighbor down from me, um, who is a uh, landscaper and has some equipment, about potentially doing it in a way where it actually is going to create a, a fairly large dam. Uh, and based on flows and things, we've kind of figured out that we could have it cover about um, almost all of his back end of his property and about 30% of the, or, or more of the length of my property uh, and, and be actually a pretty good little place to raise some fish and stuff like that. So we're going to look at doing that. We don't know if it's going to hold right yet. Uh, I'm not totally com- uh, committed to working with this guy because uh, of all my neighbors, he's the one that I'm a little bit iffy on. I think he's a land freak. Uh, if you know what a land freak is, they're the, they're the kind of people that are really concerned that you know where their land borders against your land borders are. and They want to make sure that no one's an inch off in, uh, in understanding their survey plot. And this guy's, you know, when a couple of little plots of land came up for sale, he went and bought it, which I thought was great because no one's going to build on those lots now, uh, and that's why he bought them. So I'm grateful for that, but uh, I, I, I kind of wish this guy wasn't on, on the border of my land. And uh, to give you an idea, uh, we talked to him about the gate on the road and putting it, because he's down from me, he's the other direction from me, and uh, he didn't want the gate, um, he didn't want to be behind the gate with the rest of us. And that was his choice, and no one bothered him, but he just, I don't know if I wanted to do a joint project with him. Uh, so I may just do this on my own. But that's kind of an aside. Sorry to go off there, folks. Just me thinking out loud with you about real-world stuff. Uh, but I'm probably going to do that alone unless I get a compelling reason uh, from him and a real buy-in from him to do this jointly. But service water is huge. We also have a well up there. Um, when we bought the property, the well was there. It had good flow. It was in place. It was uh, installed in the last couple of years. Good repair. Well house built around it so it wouldn't freeze. Everything was good to go. That was fun. 
fine because it was there. If it wasn't there, we would have needed to know how much the installation is going to cost. Uh, do the wells around us, where they work, talk to a neighbor. Hey, do you experience low flow at any time of the year? How deep did you... you know, I got a quote, and the quote is to go 500 feet. And you talk to your neighbors, and they, they all pull out their paperwork from when they had their well installed, and they're at 690, right? That would tell you that the guy that gave you the quote is maybe not really taking into account what needs to be done. And you better budget for a, a higher cost of installation. Uh, is there any problems with the water? Do people require any type of additional filtering of water that's coming from the ground? Uh, or any type of UV uh, uh, purification? We lived in Pennsylvania. We also had a well. And um, we had a, a bacterium uh, that was common in the area because there was so much agricultural use, even though the water looked, smelled, and tasted clean. And uh, I can't remember what this stuff was called. Uh, it wasn't real dangerous, but it was the kind of thing that could give you, you know, uh, a lot of extra time in the bathroom sometimes, uh, depending on how high the number was. And the reality was that 90% of the time the number was so low, it wouldn't affect you. But at times it could spike. So we had to have about a $500 UV purification system put in, which was just basically a super bright UV light that all the water that came out of the well ran under that light, and uh, that took care of things. But if we were putting in a new well there, it would have been nice to know to budget for that when you're making comparative land decisions. So you, you need to think about like that. To me, as a, as a permaculturist, as a gardener, I also am hugely concerned with what kind of solar exposure can I get? Can I get good sun on at least the, the, the general portion of this property uh, for growing things? And what's the soil like? The soil's less of a concern for me than I think it is for a lot of people because I know how to go in and two years later have crap soil turn into really good soil. Uh, I know how to do things like plant legumes, use cosmosing, uh, use mulching, uh, and just totally turn around what looks like barren soil in a year to two years uh, with massive amounts of nitrogen and minerals. And I know a lot of the things that look like crappy soil are actually very thin in organic matter. But they're very rich in minerals. And because of that, if you bring in and create, and you can, you know, you don't have to buy or haul organic matter. You can basically grow organic matter. You start out growing massive amounts of uh, nitrogen producing um, weeds and trees and things that can be cut and cost us back and cut down. Things that will grow anywhere. Pioneering type of plants. And basically you grow your own mulch. And then from there you continue to build on and you, you start to uh, force out the pioneers that you brought in early and start to uh, to build up that, that surrounding area with more uh, plants that are more conducive to what you're looking to do. So I'm less concerned about the soil, but I am highly concerned about the the, uh, the terrain of the land. Is it is the topology right to be able to, to put in some swale systems and some water catchment? Uh, if it's too steep, obviously you've got a problem. If it's a great big hole, if it's a bowl you know, shape, uh, I'm going to have problems with flooding. And maybe I want to go ahead and convert that piece of the property into a dam, and maybe that's a blessing instead of a curse. But I need to think about that, because if I don't, then I don't want that to be a dam. I want to actually use that land. I've got a problem if it's too low compared to the surrounding land. Um, this last week when we went up to Arkansas, poured rain all the way up there. Absolutely poured rain. So... We, the next day when it was beautiful out, sunny, 70 degrees, gorgeous, we're driving down to take a walk up West Mountain, and uh, we come by one of the people that live on the main road once you get back from our, our location, and um, you look at his front yard, it looked like he had a great big beautiful lake. 
looked like about a half acre, gorgeous pond. Uh, all he promised was probably about, I'd say, a foot deep in the middle. And um, it wasn't supposed to be there. It's just the shape of his yard, and he's down at the bottom of the mountain. And the main road is actually kind of on a, a decline as well. And uh, the way his yard is shaped, and when it rains like that, his front yard just floods. And I don't know how long it stays that way, but we were there for four days. And when we left, it didn't look much different. So at least four days. Now, if there's a garden there, it's toast at that point. So that's what I'm saying is you do need to look at the topography of the land. The next thing you need to look at, I think, for is wildlife. And it's easy to think, well, the decision is I want lots of wildlife. Do you? I do. I absolutely do. But I understand the trade-offs. I understand that I'm going to have to deal with deer and uh, keeping them out of my garden to a degree. And I can use some fencing. I can use some dogs. There's a lot of things I can do. And I can also provide in the areas where I want the deer to be more things for them to eat uh, that are easier to access that they enjoy and make them less likely to come in and eat my tomatoes or the apples off my tree, and other things like that. But I understand the trade-off. I'm willing to make the trade-off. I want the deer there, and the deer to me are an additional source of food in themselves, a source of protein. So deer, squirrels, things like that, I'm very, very interested in having around. If you want a really large, productive micro farm, folks, deer are a liability. If you have enough land, it's going to be very tough to keep, if you're, especially if you're doing things like you're growing uh, organic lettuces and different greens. Man, that's candy to a deer. And, and if you have a half acre under cultivation and uh, it's fenced in and then you have kind of your, your multi-layer permaculture system moving out and uh, you have your trees growing up high enough where the deer can't reach the apples and you just let them have the ones that fall and they got to fight the chickens for it, that can work. But if you're sitting on five acres of micro farm, um, you're gonna prob- first of all, you're probably going to deal with deer. But you might be uh, better off moving to an area that's conducive to farming with a lower deer population. Uh, unless you're just a dedicated hunter and there's a high bag limit where you live and uh, you want to live on deer meat, then maybe you can make that work. But it's going to be tough. A lot of times of the year you can't shoot those guys. They're protected, you know, in parts of the year when they're fawning and, and you know, seasons are relatively short comparative to the whole year. And uh, the time of the year you can shoot them is usually not the time you're harvesting a lot of food anyway. So it is something to consider. I don't think it's a make it or break it, but I do think you should ask the question of yourself, what do I want to do with this property? What type of wildlife are in the area, and how do they have a positive or a negative impact on that? And and am am I willing to deal with it? And uh, I think that's the question that people gloss over and they don't think about. And they really need to. Uh, I'll bring it up. Uh, kind of already talked about it. Obviously, if you want to be in a place where you don't have regulations, zoning, uh, a lot of crap like that, permits and inspectors to deal with. Um, but I have to say it again because I just despise them. No homeowners associations. None. Nothing should exist that can change what you can do today so that you can't do it tomorrow. <clears throat> we have, like I said, we have a, a landowner's covenant uh, where I live. And there's basically three rules, and, and that is that all homes must be permanently affixed. You can't come in there with, you know, a trailer up on blocks. Um, all roofs must be um, 
composite of some kind uh, or, or metal, uh, no uh, no tin roofs, right, so to speak. The uh, You can't go in there and build a, a shack with some corrugated steel for a roof. So it has to be a real recognized roof with a permanent structure. It uh, doesn't mean you can't have mobile homes. They can come in, but they have to be set up in a permanent fashion. And uh, last but not least and most important is you can't build um, anything on less than five acres. And then the fourth and most important restriction, which is not actually a restriction, it's a very constitutional idea, and that is no further restrictions upon the residents can be enacted by other residents. That these are the only restrictions that exist, and uh, if the government does something, obviously we can't prevent that, but we've actually set up in the Landowners Covenant uh, that no further restrictions by landowners can be enacted. In other words, there's no potential to actually turn the Land Covenant into a uh, homeowners association and when you buy property there uh, it was set up so that when you buy the property you inherit the prior property owner's commitment to it I think that's pretty cool I like that Um, I I really like that and um, I think it makes it very unlikely that I'm going to ever end up in a situation where somebody can bitch about me shooting my gun off, uh, which I kind of had a rant on earlier this week. But, I mean, I'm telling you the truth when I say I went up there, I brought my 45, went out in the back, set some targets up down on the thing, and started shooting out of my porch. Um, and a neighbor came down. I said, hey, how you doing? He said, it's a nice gun. Can I shoot it? That's the kind of place I want to live. That's exactly the kind of place that I want to live. And uh, I think that's the most important thing I can give you today. Find the kind of place you want to live in. If you don't want to live in a place where people shoot off of their back porch, if you think that's dangerous, if you don't like it, if you don't want the noise, don't go somewhere where people are already doing that. Go someplace where people have already agreed not to do that. I mean, that's my biggest advice today. And it's not just about shooting guns. That's not what I'm talking I'm talking about understanding a community that you're moving into. It is so wrong, in my opinion, for new people to come into an existing place and expect the community to bend to their wants, needs, and desires, rather than for them to fit into the community. A perfect example, um, I can't remember the name of the town. It was like something with a P. It was like Palo Alto, but that wasn't a town. Uh, There was a Palo Alto, but this was a different um, town with a P in, um, in Pennsylvania that we used to go uh, watch races. There was like a half-mile dirt track with sprint cars and all when I was in high school, and it, it was a better place to go watch races than Big Diamond up in Jonestown, and uh, it was a great track. And when the track was built, no one lived out there. And these the races are loud, right? you got these cars that are unmuffled, you know, and they're out there every Friday and Saturday running these cars through racing season. And um, the town built itself around the racetrack and then began complaining about the noise from the racetrack. If the town existed and they came to build a racetrack and the town said, no, we don't want that, the townspeople would have had a point. Since the track was the pre-existing thing, and they chose to create this little town around this racetrack, which I'm sure in the beginning was because of the economic activity created by it, and as the town created its own economic activity, and a generation went by, people decided that the track wasn't important anymore, they tried to put this place out of business. Fortunately, it never happened because 
because that would have been wrong to the track owners and the investors and, and, and the racers, honestly. But that's why I talk about something totally different than shooting a gun. I want you to understand the importance of understanding your community that you're moving into. And if there's, if there's five people that live in an area around you that you're going to affect, and there's only five, that's still a community, and they were there first, and they have their community's rules, and you should look at it, you should talk to them, you should determine what kind of people these are, what kind of you know basic rules that they have with each other, and you should say, does this fit me or does it not? Right? You should not move in there and say, hey, I don't think you should be shooting shotguns. I'm, I'm worried that you might damage my property or something like that. If it was already the case. Likewise, gun owners, it is not right for us to move into an area where everybody's kind of agreed we don't discharge firearms around here, start blowing things away off our back porch and expect everybody to be okay with it. People need to be responsible and interact with each other properly and understand each other uh, in advance. And I think if we did that, we'd have less conflict in our neighborhoods today. We'd have less problems with our neighbors today. And, and that's that's kind of my big thing for you. And look at it this way. Um, it's like the old joke about a man and a woman getting married. A man finds the, finds the woman of his dreams and says she's perfect. I hope she never changes. And she does. The woman finds the man and says he's perfect except for these couple things, but I'll marry him and I'll change him. And you can't change the man. He is what he is. And so many women have been miserable in marriages because they thought they were going to change the man. Well, that's how communities are. They don't change for new people, and they shouldn't. So find the place. If you're looking for a permanent home, find the place that fits who you are. Go there and be who you are. You'll be a hell of a lot happier. And I think you could take that lesson and apply it to a great deal of other things around you. And with that, I'll wrap up, folks. Helping you find a piece of land today. Helping you figure out how to store food. Helping you figure out how to uh, you know, treat injuries tomorrow. We'll do everything we can to help you find your own path through life. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent